Hey, Matt. You know how they say that uh, tragedy plus time is comedy? Uh, yeah. Well, a shared secret plus time equals an extra layer of security for your online accounts. Bam, bam, bam. Buckle up for some more security nerd jokes because this episode is heavy on the 2FA. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That leads us in like directly to our first point, right? I think it does. Yeah, uh, Matt, what's a YubiKey? I, you know what? I don't have one of these, but I feel like now I should. I, I don't have one either. I have one key, and like I've, I've tried to, you know, simplify my life in the fact that I always forget my keys. Yep. But I find if I have one key, it's always in my pocket. So I don't want to add anything to my key ring. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like Carrie, my wife, has uh, what I call the janitor ring of keys. I don't know even where they all come from, but it seems like she has like 40 keys on her key ring. I have two, uh, my car key and the house key, and that's it. And I don't want any more. So I'm, I'm all about the minimal, minimal key ring. That being said, when I visited Google, seeing him have to put in this like little USB key on an, like a little extendable thing that was from his pocket and then log in it was pretty cool he could just leave his laptop around yeah he, he just left it in the staff coffee shop place and just went to the bathroom and like just left his laptop there which i i wouldn't do in a million years i would never do no no yeah operational security is like always even even in my house like i will i will leave the office and i'll sort of look back at my computer and be like someone breaks into my house in the next five minutes my computer's sitting there unlocked so like i'm very aware of it at all times i am the first person that takes a screenshot of someone's computer and saves it as their desktop when they leave it unlocked <laughs> in an office <laughs> that's that's mean yeah including like such wonders as setting the mac os clock to read out the time in a really like slow voice every 15 minutes that's another good one. <laughs> oh, that i like that i like that i uh i remember when we were at our company-wide retreat a couple of years ago we opened up the laptop lid of one of our coworkers who was just maybe like 10 or 15 feet away and his apple watch unlocked his computer for us at that distance and he sort of like looked at his watch and then looked at his computer and then looked at us and was like, what the hell, guys? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of benefits to, to uh, something like this. It's physical that you actually have to put into your computer. Yeah, I do really like the idea of it. And I like that we're kind of starting to support more of this stuff, more of these kind of additional factors. And, uh, you know, of course, you can use our own two factor that we have on, on one password accounts. You can use Duo as, as Teams. And um, yeah, I hope we bring out loads more of these. Yeah, I think so too. You know, we went that whole segment without actually describing what a YubiKey is, right? Like we didn't tell anyone that it's it's a little hardware key. It connects with a USB into your USB port and it will actually act as a keyboard. Like it will type for you when you activate it. And so it will type in one-time passwords that you program into it. Uh, so, and it can you can use it for anything. Uh, that currently supports TOTP, time-based one-time passwords. So on our service with, with OnePassword.com, you can set it up, and that just uses a standard TOTP algorithm. Uh, you could use it with GitHub and set up your, your TOTP there, 
and use your YubiKey to log in as your second factor for GitHub. So it's a physical second factor authentication mechanism. It's, it's really a neat idea. Yeah, Google actually have their own thing that they're coming out with. Uh, it's actually only for sale in the US at the moment, I believe. But this was the thing that they, you know, that they had for uh, for employees, I believe. It was like um, something that they leave in their, their computer all the time. It's a nice idea. I think I would always have an additional one somewhere, like in a safe or like under a floorboard. Just because just I, I know I'm going to lose it. No, but that's a really interesting thought. You know, one of my, one of the concerns with setting up two-factor authentication for various accounts is what if I somehow lose the generator? <laughs> the reason I made a horrible nerdy joke at the beginning of the show saying that that time plus a shared secret equals extra extra security for your online accounts is because that's how these algorithms work. Uh, if you go to set up 2FA at a particular website, they give you a secret code that you then paste into your your one-time password generator, which could be one password itself or uh, other apps like Authy or, or you know use your your physical YubiKey. And every thirty seconds, you get a new six-digit or eight-digit code that you can use to authenticate yourself. But if you lose that shared secret, you now can't generate those second factor codes, which gives me a little bit of anxiety. With a physical key, you're right. You could have a second one that you have programmed with all of your all of your one-time passwords, stick it in a safe, and then you're good to go. Like you 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 won't ever lose it. Which is a I think that's that's a big benefit of having this in a physical form. Yeah, I, I, I do actually have like um like a locked drawer that I keep this kind of stuff in. Like I, I have my secret key printed out in there. It's a kind of place where I put my passport as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So I, I think we can uh, move on to questions from our users. We don't have a jingle for that little intro bit, but uh, I'm, I'm glad you dun, didn't. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. I, well, I was about to say, I'm glad you didn't go. Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I think only one of those an episode. At the most, like maybe one of those every few episodes. It's, it's special. It shouldn't happen <laughs> all the time. Um. This first question um, is a bit artificial, as some of them tend to be these days, because uh, we're, you know, I'm still looking for some ask one password hashtagged items on Twitter. But hang on, one password can store TOTP codes. Well, th- this is a question that I see come a- up a fair amount on Twitter. It's people that have used one password for a long time, and so perhaps don't read up all the information for every new version. Because, you know, they just continually use it. Right. And one of the things that I see is, like, someone says, oh, yeah, no, I don't need that. I just store my TOTP codes or my 2FA codes, whatever, in one password. And then the other guy goes, what? Yeah, I do see that exchange quite a bit on Twitter. You're right. Honestly, this happens with a lot of 1Password features. I mean, I, I still will see questions from people that are like, when are you going to support touch id on the touch bar max and it's like well we did that on the day that those were released it's been around for a couple of years now so yeah this is this is another one of those things yeah so the way that we've implemented this is it's just another type of field so when you go to edit an item you can choose a drop down on some platforms or it's a little cog uh on on others and you just hit that and it brings up the types of fields and then you choose one-time password. You can scan your QR code right there and, and add a TOTP code. Yeah, it works It works really well. What's really cool is that uh, you can actually 
starting in 1Password 7.2 for Mac, and this is something that exists in the 1Password in the X browser extension, uh, you can fill these one-time password codes. So you don't even need to like worry about uh, getting them out of 1Password of itself. When you use these with 1Password, and in fact, even prior to 7.2 for Mac and, and iOS, we will put the one-time password code on the clipboard for you automatically when you go to fill something. So you'll fill in your username and password, and then we'll put that one-time password on the pasteboard. So all you have to do is just go paste it into the field when you're asked for it, and it works really well. And in, in 1Password X, it will fill it for you automatically, which is really, really cool. Yeah, it's um, it's really seamless once you once you kind of get the hang of it. Yep, absolutely. Cool. So uh, yeah, we actually have a special guest on. It is again someone from One Password. I promise we're gonna get some you know extra special guests at some point. But uh, yeah, we've got Mitch on, who is from the One Password X team. So welcome, Mitch. How are you? I am doing great. I'm all set up with a microphone. My buddy Chris Meek's place, who is another one password developer, and I'm ready to do this. That's awesome. Uh Matt, why why is Mitch on the call today? So Mitch is on the One Password X team, which is a really interesting new part of One Password. And I brought him on to kind of talk about it and you know, perhaps the first question that you can answer, Mitch, is, you know, what is One Password X? And when would I use it? That's a question we get asked a lot, especially because 1Password X in some ways has overlap with other 1Password versions and apps that, that we also have out. But I, I want to clarify the things that it's best at, which are um, the, the main one for us is, is it's, it's an app that can go places where the other 1Password apps can't go. And that means it can run by itself in a web browser and it can work on Linux and on Chromebooks Actually, the other day I got it working on my Raspberry Pi. I was really, really happy to see that. So <laughs> if you need to run 1Password on your toaster, chances are you're going to be able to use 1Password X one day. At least that's that's <laughs> going to be our goal. But the other, the other thing about 1Password X is not just that it runs in all these cool operating systems and devices. It's sort of a, it's a, it's another take at our browser extension. And the first time we've really redesigned our browser extension from the ground up since we've had a browser extension. So... It's a different and new experience of using 1Password on the web to, to save and fill passwords. And a lot of people, even on Macs and PCs, uh, like using it because of, because of that new experience. So the, the thing that I, I love about it the most, I think, is how fast you guys are iterating on like simple ideas. Like It, it seems to be moving probably the fastest of any, any product at 1Password, and I, I think... That's probably because, you know, you're quite new. You haven't got all the, the paths and all the kind of baggage that the older applications are. But you're actually using machine learning as well. How are you using that to kind of move the product forward? So those, those two points are actually related. We can iterate very quickly, not just because there's, there's not all the baggage, as you've said, but because working on a web extension means that you can ship updates pretty frequently without without causing much of an issue. All the browsers are updated all the time automatically, and so are browser extensions. So we can have lots of incremental updates that sort of subtly add improvements to 1Password X instead of having major version releases like once every six months or so. And that's allowed us to add sort of completely new underlying technologies like machine learning and add them gradually. So we're, we're starting very simply. We're using machine learning to help us 
fill and save better and to help us do a better job at detecting fields on the page, which is something that the, the 1Password extension has always done. But it used to do it with a set of hard-coded rules, and those rules were always not as good as we wanted them to be because they were written by us, they weren't all that comprehensive, and they only really worked in English. And what we can do instead with machine learning is we can collect data from thousands of sites, and then 1Password can tell us how to fill on those pages. And it, it turns out that it's a lot more accurate, even if it's a lot less understandable to us as programmers. And it's 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 really exciting just what we've been able to do with a, a very few features in 1Password X and get them working with machine learning. Yeah, that is one of my favorite things about 1Password X is sort of this unencumbered playground to try out new ideas and, and sort of push the bounds of, of what's possible and rethink some of the things that have been the norm in one password for a long, long time. Um, and, and sort of letting it set the stage for, for what one password is going to be in the future. Even it's, it's very, very cool. We like to think of it and we sometimes call it a playground because sometimes there will be sort of an idea that's been floating around across several development teams. And there's, it's hard to sort of justify including every idea in, in every release of a new version, but one password X it's, it's quite easy to, to sort of test the water and not all of those ideas end up sticking, but, but it's, it's become a great ground for, for experimentation. So going, going back to machine learning for a while, um, how are you kind of going about this in a, in a different way? How are you protecting people's privacy where, you know, other machine learning is kind of, you know, taking in all the information that people have to give and, and providing something? What makes this use of machine learning different? So we, we handle machine learning the way we handle everything at 1Password. And that is that we don't actually collect data from, from users or from customers to, to train our machine learning models. We go and collect the data ourselves for our models. So we actually, we wrote a special tool for, um, for our own employees and we distributed it internally. And they actually went and collected data from thousands of websites that, that they use and that we know are popular because of rate rankings like Alexa and other other lists like that. So all of the data that's been used to train this model came from, from public sources and not from users. So there is actually no private information in our machine learning or data collection at all. And it's it's quite quite good that we're able to to get so much benefit from data that doesn't come from from individuals. So we don't even have to to do anything special to protect individual users. Was the machine learning model developed in-house, Mitch, or was this a model that you you found and sort of built upon and seeded with with data? The first machine learning model was developed in-house, and it's it's actually a rather simple model as far as machine learning goes. It's it's called a support vector machine classifier. So there are lots of libraries that you can use to write these, and we wrote one and prototyped it in Python, and then we actually we ported it to Go for for inclusion in one password X. But there's nothing sort of proprietary or fancy about the model. What matters with machine learning is is the data more than the model. Right. Without all that data, it wouldn't do anything or it wouldn't do anything useful. So so collecting the data and then fine-tuning the results is what took most of the work. I think that um, it might be worthwhile to give like a like a 30,000-foot overview of the way that, that a machine learning classifier works. And, and there was, um, you know, Apple has been doing a, a bunch of this uh, recently with Core ML. And one of the things that sticks out in my head uh, from one of their demos at the developers conference was, you know, you, you basically, you create a model and then you have to train it. 
And the way you train it is by giving it data, which is what you were talking about, Mitch, right? Like you, you've had, you had people internally, you know, go to different websites and stuff. And they had a, a model that was a flower identifier. And what they did was they gave it just a bunch of different pictures of different flowers and said, these are all flowers. So if you see something like this, it is probably a flower. Uh, and, and then we're able to turn around and identify not only flowers, but then types of flowers within that. And so the more data that you give to the model, uh, the smarter it can be and stuff like that. So this is, this is one of those things I think that there's a lot of runway ahead of us here because we can take, take our model and continue to feed it more and more data and make it smarter and smarter, right? Yeah. Well, like in that flower example, the important thing isn't just feeding data, but feeding labeled data. So there's there's still people involved and a lot of work involved because someone has to go through and say, not just give it pictures of flowers, but say, these are flowers. And in our case, the flowers are like password fields and address fields and credit card fields. So, so we go and collect tons and tons of web pages and we go through them and label them. And then when you feed that data to, to the machine learning model, then it can make predictions on the future, in the future on similar data. So yes, the more data we give it, the smarter it gets. And that means that in future releases of the software, it'll just start being better without having any code changes, which is, which is actually pretty exciting. That's really exciting, yeah. Yeah. So what, what's next on the 1Password X kind of roadmap? So for a while now, the focus of 1Password X has been on gaining features that the other 1Password apps have had, in some cases, for years, and just making sure that people can use 1Password X on Linux without sort of missing out on anything. And... We feel that we're, 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 we're sort of close to that, that stage for most users. So now we want to explore some of the more experimental ideas that we've been playing with, like, like improving machine learning and giving more predictions and, and, and suggestions for people as they use the web. Because there's so much context that we have when you're on a web page to, to suggest the right thing that we don't just have to show you like everything in one password. We can show you what, what you probably want to do at that moment, whether it's... um filling just a specific, a specific piece of information or or just looking up information that's related to that page. We can, we can help you with that and we can do it in a way that's, that's secure and reflects your privacy. That's awesome. So yeah, thank you very much for coming on and uh, yeah, we'll see you around. See you around. All right, Matt, let's dive into Watchtower Weekly. Matt, do you have uh, a British Airways account? You know, every now and then... I cannot fly with a cheap airline, and I have to fly with uh, BA. <laughs> that's that's generally how I roll. So, yeah, I, I do. Do they have your credit card on file? Yes, they do. Well, guess what? <laughs> uh, they're not the only ones that have your credit card anymore, uh, quite possibly. Yeah, they had a breach. Uh, over 380,000 customers had their credit cards stolen from British Airways. Um, they, good chance... Uh, if if this affects you, you've already been contacted by British Airways. But uh, just in case, you should probably go and, and just check and see if you're affected. So th- there's a couple of things about this. The first thing is that I I bank with a, a bank called Monzo, and uh, they're pretty new. That sounds fake. Yeah, they're, they're a really good bank. Oh, that's awesome. They're, they're, they're brand new. They're like a couple of years old, I think, which is brand new in banking, right? Of course, yeah. So they have been issuing out new cards even before British Airways admitted 
that these details had leaked. And it's not the first time that they've done that. So if you were affected by this, they would just send you a brand new card in the post with an explanation of, hey, we think uh, this has happened to your card. We've sorted it all out. Here's your new card. Like, just scan this in the app and it's it's all ready to go. You can just ditch your old card. That's awesome. Like, they have been absolutely brilliant about it. So it's almost like they take, like, the early fraud detection warnings to just mean, like, if if we think that there might be fraud, you're just getting a new card. They investigate it themselves after they get that information. Wow. So when Ticketmaster uh, had a data breach and that included credit cards, they were the ones who actually alerted Ticketmaster. They had seen trends for, you know, fraudulent purchases and, and tied wow. it back to Ticketmaster. That's awesome. Another part of this is that, you know, these breaches happen for a lot of different reasons. Like the latest research is that 80% of the time, it is passwords that that are affecting these data breaches. Just poor password management. Right, yeah. A poor operational security on the side of the banks. Yeah. Or British Airways in this case. And one of the... One of the things that that hits a company when they have to do things like this is the share price. British Airways has been pretty stable for for several years, but they they took a knock of 2% over this, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a fair amount of money. So GDPR has played a part in a lot of these breaches just for the fact that any companies in the EU are actually required through GDPR to declare these breaches. So before... They might have kept it really quiet. They might have kind of contacted customers individually and, and not released anything publicly. Or, But now companies can actually be fined for that. So it's a really interesting point of GDPR that is like communicating this, you know, consequences as well. And I, I think that's why we're seeing more data breaches over the last couple of uh weeks than we have before. You think because they're just, they're required now to be far more upfront about it absolutely yeah they they not only have to communicate that something has happened they have to communicate the consequences the name and and contact details of the of the people who are dealing with this and describe the the nature of it like whether it's personal data or the categories approximate numbers of how many people have been affected like they have to release information about everything that's awesome. I love I love that that aspect of GDPR. Um, it's good to know that it didn't just result in thousands of, of emails to my inbox about everyone updating their privacy policy. <laughs> I think we are at my favorite part of the show uh, now, which is where you say a British place name, right? And I've got a really good one lined up this so week. I, I take I take a little umbrage with this because. I feel like it's making fun of me, and I, I don't like I, it. I feel like it's making fun of us more, oh. who have just silly place names. <laughs> if I wanted to make this a fair game, I would pick like Welsh place names, because then <laughs> I couldn't pronounce them either. Yeah, but then we wouldn't have a, we wouldn't have a source of truth either. We, you and I would just be sounding like like ding-dongs on the recording and and welsh people would be like that's not it at all it's supposed to be this and we wouldn't have anyone to come on and tell us what it actually is that's true so here we go are you you ready for this week's yep hit me oh matt that 
is obviously uh, jolly old Wymondham. Wymondham, as as you know, uh, is where some of the first hams were actually invented. This, when you eat ham, uh, this is where it came from. Was from Wyndham ham. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's Wyndham. Oh. Yeah, that's what I said. Wyndham. (laughs) (laughs) When whenever I go out for like a Sunday drive with my wife i try and create names uh, and stories behind them like that <laughs> uh i'm gonna turn this around on you next time uh, for the next recording so um i live in central new york state and central new york state has a very rich cultural history of native american tribes in the area and that has influenced a lot of the town names around here and i i'm gonna give you one next time uh, so for those of you that are binging this series uh, after it comes out in its entirety, you can just click on to the next one. Uh, but those that are going one at a time now, y- this is a cliffhanger. I have introduced a cliffhanger into our podcast, Matt. I've, I've made it incredibly sticky. Like People are going to be hitting that refresh button, looking for the next episode to see what happens. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Till next time. Love you, Rue. All right. Love you too, Matt. Bye.